Welcome to Direct Audio Movie Discussions Podcast. My name is Spencer, and it is truly the most wonderful time of the year because it is now officially spooky season. Ooh. Yes, and that voice is it's Max. I mean, I feel like I feel like on the pod one, that was kind of an anticlimactic way to say Max. Like I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's Max. And I just said it at the same time. Yeah. And we were both monotone. <laughs> yeah. It's kinda of like um yeah, it's a bump. Yeah, um, like it's Max. Yeah, we need to have that with like fireworks and stuff, <laughs> and like the name is written up in the fireworks, like yeah. how they would do it on like the little rig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like some, one of them is spinning. I think the X would be spinning. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then the A burns out. Yeah, the A burns out a little bit, which so is mmx. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are not my biggest like horror movie aficionado friend that I have. Or like spooky movie, you I feel like are very selective when it comes to, you don't yeah you don't shy away from the genre, but you it's not your favorite. Nah, it's true. <laughs> but so yeah, when I'm right. when I'm trying know, to so. right, that's it. Thanks guys. I just wanted to call Max out of the pod. <laughs> you you pretty, you pretty much defined my opinion on horror movies. I have nothing else to say about it. <laughs> right, and but like but so when trying to find something. It is a lot of like, oh, I think Max should see this because it is a tentpole or it is important or it is something that I think he would enjoy. Um, and so we've had those in the past where we did um, you watching Young Frankenstein, which led, led you to watching the rest of the Universal Monster movies. And we've brought up horror movies on the pod throughout our multitude, multitude, multitude of episodes. And... You did suggest that we do The Goonies, and... Yeah, I understand what you did. It's not a horror movie, but spooky season, fall, October, there's nothing that screams October like The Goonies. It looks like just an October day, and that's why I suggested it. And yeah, plus, and I've that's... I've seen it a zillion times. I think there are some movies that people... It's like Christmas movies and movies that are take place around Christmas, or movies that, like, I guess just present that vibe... And that's yeah. why I never, like, shy away from people who, you know, if they don't want to watch horror movies or they feel like, you know, certain ones aren't their bag or whatever. If you attach yourself yeah. to the Goonies or if you are a big fan of Stranger Things or if you want to watch Scooby-Doo or you, like, whatever you, like, attach yourself to, I yeah. think any outlet's a good outlet. Goonies to me, because you want, you said you wanted to complete the... The 80s G movies with the Ghostbusters, yeah. Gremlins, and Goonies. Yeah. I feel like we can cover Goonies pretty much at any time, which I'm cool yeah. with. We can even do it in November. Like, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's a it's a kind of an amalgamous movie because it can be a summer blockbuster type movie. Yeah. There's the Spielberg connections. Like, mm -hmm. it's great. But we I was... Cover it right after this episode. Let's cover it right Opens now. Opens on a black screen. Yeah. Steven Spielberg presents... I've seen it a million times. <laughs> Let's run through it. I'll yeah. just take over. Just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> no, take, you take over this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, but kind of transitioning to that, one movie, and this is why we did this episode, that you had not seen that has come up on the pod frequently yeah. uh, is one of my – I mean, it's one of my favorite 90s horror films. I think when yeah. it comes down to, like, an overall, it probably slots in somewhere within – and this will sound lame to you, listener, but when I think about horror movies, like a solid top 25. Okay. Which is still a high praise. Yeah. Like, I think it's probably near, like, 10, 15 range area. Especially um, for someone like you who, like, adores horror movies. That's that's praise. You know? Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, 
But we were talking about, or you had mentioned that you had never seen the original Candyman. Yes. So we had you watch it, obviously. And we're just going to be discussing your thoughts on it, some points throughout the movie. Um, and I, I guess I'm just going to clarify right now. Um, the deep social commentary throughout this movie and racial commentary um, is something that, for lack of a better term, is way above Max and I's pay grade. <laughs> um, a phrase that one of my friends used often. We do not study it. We haven't really studied it. And I guess I want to get in front of that now where we also don't have those life experiences. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to have this dive deep into a conversation that we're not equipped for or even, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, um, I guess, not ready for, but you know, you kind of know what I mean. Like we, I have done a lot of research Mm -hmm. throughout the years of after watching this movie articles um i actually have a couple that i've pulled up that i read recently um and i'll name drop some just for the listener if you want to go more in depth with that i don't think not reading those things takes away from the movie but i want to just get that out the way right now at the beginning Mm -hmm. because i don't want to set the listener up for either an expectation or feel like we're going to be leading them on this path and then not be able to do that so i encourage you to go through the myriad of wonderful in-depth articles and essays about the um, rich background of um, race uh, like analysis throughout this movie Um, there are some issues that come from it and have stemmed Mm -hmm. from it and people have made those notes and so i want people to just be able to go find those but beyond that, I think what's great about this movie, and I've said this before on other podcasts and this podcast, is I think it's so fascinating to me that there is a horror movie that can have that much weight attached to it, both yeah. in a good way and then also in, I don't want to say a bad way, but something Taking that's... Taking the wrong way. I think it's just a fascinating horror movie on multiple levels that we'll kind of dive into, but... And I'm waiting because you said you had thoughts, and I'm very <laughs> concerned. What are your thoughts? Well, first off, I'm glad you got all that way out of the way at the beginning, because um, there was a lot to take in in terms of racial themes in this movie, and some of them, because of what you said, like our life experiences aren't the same as the characters portrayed in the movie. Because of that, I didn't pick up on some of them during the movie while I was watching it. It, Like, as soon as it ended, I went on my phone and I found a bunch of articles about it. I was like, oh, that's what they were doing there. So, like, I'm glad you brought it up because some of the stuff, like you said, we're not necessarily equipped to talk about. And um, I just took my dog for a walk right before this, thinking of some last-minute things. And I was just like, I hope I don't, like overstep any boundaries. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'm glad you got that out of the way. Anywho, my initial thoughts for this movie, I liked it a lot, but I didn't love it. I thought the cinematography was astounding. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. And the music, I the next day after I watched it, I had that main theme stuck in my head, went and learned it on piano. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Philip yeah. Glass's score. I was going to say, and Philip Glass does, I mean, it literally just using choral notes, a piano, and an organ for this entire yeah. score. It is breathtaking. Yep. And, like, just from the first, for the opening credits, that overhead shot of the car, the way the the 
credits slide into the frame set to that music, I said to Bree, well, now I know where Jordan Peele got a lot of his influence, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, it almost felt like, um, when I was like 19 and I saw 500 days of summer, I was like, this is amazing. And then a few years later I saw Annie Hall and I was like, Oh, they just stole everything from Annie Hall. That's kind of how I felt like after watching Candyman, I was like, Oh, Jordan Peele took a lot from this movie, <laughs> you know? And that's where I think I want, I want to say, Jordan Peele didn't steal anything from any movie. Like he also produced. Yeah. I, I do also want to mention a fun little like it's it's gonna go down very similarly to Tim Burton and Nightmare for Christmas. Jordan Peele did not direct the new iteration of Candyman. As Neil yeah. Costa that did that movie. He helped write the screenplay. Exactly, but people it's like people going Tim Burton did Nightmare for yeah. Christmas. No, he did not. He well, helped with it. But he I did always... not make the film. So yeah, same. But like, but you can also you clearly can see there is an inspiration, and he's talked about it too. I mean, when you again going off of this point, it's the like one of the I think if not the one of the like staple African American centric horror films that have existed. Yeah. I mean, there really aren't many when you think about the genre. When you're going into the slashers, don't really. I mean, a lot. It's what Michael Myers, um, Jason Voorhees. Chucky, Child's Play doesn't really dive in, even though they take place in the same city. Child's Play's in Chicago. Candyman's mm-hmm. in Chicago. There really aren't many yeah. without becoming caricatures of themselves because they're all, everybody knows the tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is one that you – I mean he's mentioned in the past. That's why they wanted to remake it because it's like – it's an iconic piece of film for Jordan. Yeah. And side note, have you seen the remake? Yes. Did, uh, okay, so we'll get into that in a second. I haven't seen it, but um, I I haven't even read anything about it. I just know that Nia directed it, Jordan helped write it, which makes me happy. I always knew that Jordan Peele's name was attached. I knew that he didn't direct it, but right. you know, sometimes when you see a trailer for a movie and it says, from the producer, and you're like, oh, well, I'm yep. checked out anyways. Yep. That's usually just like, let's throw this name up there to get butts and seats. When I found out that he helped write the screenplay, I'm like, ah, now well, that's, I'm interested. Right, but that, I think everybody takes that and they go, oh, it's Jordan Peele, is his movie. It's like, no. like We need to give re- recognition to Nia, and we need to give recognition to people who do work that attack like i mean it's similar to like when spielberg would throw his name on something it's like yeah. oh yeah it's it he helped make this movie mm-hmm. but he did not make the movie yeah spielberg kind of like goonies a, he was an interesting case though the yeah. sidest of notes but uh yeah. you know he produced poltergeist and the goonies but i've read that he essentially directed half of both movies because he was on set every day whereas yeah i, I mean toby some, hooper is when you're with yeah toby yeah anyways go on and no, but you were talking about how you you saw the influences yeah. from that work and how, with the cinematography and how it was made. I mean, obviously, like we said, Bernard Rose um, directing the work is masterful in this movie. Oh, it's it's amazing, and not just the cinematography and the music, but the set design, mm-hmm. the practical effects. When I read about the practical effects, my head fell off my body. I, I mean, couldn't believe they achieved what they did, especially those fucking bees. I say the bees know? that they literally had in Tony Todd's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cinematography was by Anthony Richmond. I want to point that out because we've talked about it quite a bit. I looked him up and like his other movies, he doesn't have that many special movies. I feel like he put it all in for this one. You know what I mean? He, weirdly enough, worked on The Sandlot, <laughs> <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeak Wool. Oh, there we go. Yeah, and a lot of like mid 
2000s really strange movies and then legally blonde yeah. so like uh i mean i love the saying a lot but everything else oh boy first kid with yeah. sinbad jesus christ yeah he has a lot of stinkers on his he has, he has dumb, dumb and dumber, dumber. Yep. <laughs> dumb and dumberer yes just friends wow so yeah he did a, a big mama's three i think yeah. good lord i've noticed a lot with um documentaries or music videos they sometimes make some very visually pleasing movies so it makes sense that he did like beatles get back and beatles let it be and stuff because he really just has an eye for like what the viewer wants to see like what you should focus on and this movie has that it was just it was so beautiful to look at and then going off of that i was very impressed with the dread like it was really scary and what I loved was, like, they get out right away. They tell the urban legend about the couple that said Candyman five times in the mirror, and he pops up, you know? Yeah. Ted Raimi. I want to point out that. Sam Ted Raimi. Yes. yes. That was him, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I thought he looked familiar. Anyways, so, like, they do that right away, but it's a story, you know? It didn't doesn't actually happen in the movie. It's somebody telling a story. And what I thought was impressive, they get that out of the way. So, as a viewer, I was like, oh, shit. They're, they're going for it. And it's not even like 10 minutes into the movie yet. So like for the the next 30 minutes, they tease you with these jump scares that aren't actually scary things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like um, uh, when they're in the apartment and Helen's going through the tunnel or whatever. Yeah. And then she just pops her head out and says something. I need film. I'm out of film. Yeah. It like it scares you. But then you're like, oh, shit, they teased me. So like. I, I was very impressed with how they did that. They set the tone immediately, and then you're on the edge of your seat like anything could happen. She's already said Candyman's name five times. What When's it going to happen? And then it takes that twist in the middle of the movie. It literally, I'm not even kidding, for a listener, I mean, if you have seen it and you've ever paused, the first time you see Candyman is 45 minutes in. Yep. And it is so glorious and so earned and chilling. Terrifying. Right. As soon as you realize that you are not dealing with a copycat and this is not just urban legend and there is actually a man and or a monster behind the name, mm-hmm. it is so – and I will talk about Tony Todd later. But yeah. like, yeah, it's amazing. It's, um, everything's earned. And you, what I liked about that was that scene when she wakes up with the blood on her shirt and it just slowly pans through the mess that she's in. All of a sudden, it's not a jump scare movie anymore, you know? No. It, it chooses to, like, let the camera linger on something and just sink in. And I think that's way more effective than, bah! you know, something jumping out at you. So I was very impressed with the cinematography, music, set design, practical effects, and just that feeling of dread in this movie. And then um, Tony Todd gave a masterful performance as the Candyman. I mean, he's, it's the voice, his aura, his just physical acting Mm -hmm. and the commitment. I mean, like you mentioned, so there's a scene with bees, um, which is a whole nother level of commentary that, um, I looked up and was kind of stunned by, but, um, he had actual live bees Mm -hmm. in his mouth all over his body. Uh, he had a, uh, like a piece of, um, I don't know, like latex or plastic or something like that in his mouth so they wouldn't go all the way in the back of his throat or on mm-hmm. the side of his mouth. And a couple got back there during the scene. Just kept going. 
Um, they were infantile bees, and there was a beekeeper on set, uh, so they are not keen to are not uh, like so prone to st- uh, sting. Yeah, um, which is I think very interesting. They used and they had, and it's all over him, all over Virginia Madsen, all over like the set is just covered in bees. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, but his his performance is just it's one where Tony Todd is a legend in the horror movie uh, community. I mean, he's been in everything from Final Destination to this to bit parts in, like, The Wishmaster. And uh, his voice has been lent to other places. Like, he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in the remake of Night of the Living Dead. But this is always, by far and away, like, his performance. Yeah, he was excellent. And, like, what I liked taking away from even the scary, like, all the scary aspects about his performance, he also just, he was kind of suave. Yeah. And like that that was like part of his you know routine of killing people. He would like kind of suck them in, you know. And so that's what um he added that layer to the backstory. I said like they had some of that but he wanted to add um a bit to his character which almost becomes this uh Dracula slash Phantom of the Opera like um, macabre mix of and then gothic horror kind of blended together where like you have that like it's always been you helen like that connection that she might have been the woman that he was with and they're just yeah. destined to be with each other which is that level of dracula and then yeah his uh and they even the shots that they use on helen's eyes is reminiscent of dracula from the yeah. 1930s and so what's a cool little fun note i want to mention if during those sequences it ever looks like Helen or, or Virginia Madsen is acting like kind of strangely. Um, she was legitimately hypnotized. Um, yeah. Every scene that was with the Candyman like that, she worked with a hypnotist or they did on set and they had certain words that they could say that would get her into a trance like state. Mm-hmm. And she, she was like, Oh, I don't believe this is dumb. And then like the first time they did, it, she like came back to and they're like, Oh yeah, it's been like 20 minutes. <laughs> and she's like Whoa. yeah so um they had par- points where they would hypnotize her like that first meeting um and it almost becomes like ethereal and like there, it's just so reminiscent of those classic monsters yeah. and he wanted to have that in there but then blended in with a slasher that isn't really like your typical slasher mm-hmm. um it's just masterful it really is I, that's all the stuff that I liked about it. I thought it was very, very well made, made with care, you know? Yeah. But what kind I didn't like about it, as much as I thought the pacing was well done with the scares and like that big twist in the middle, I thought the pacing in the dialogue scenes was very slow. Like when it was Helen and she was like talking about the legend and she went and met that kid, I just felt... Like, I was like, all right, come on, get on with it. And I know, you know, not every movie has to be exciting all the time, but I just felt like some of the acting in those scenes kind of weighed the movie down. I see that. And, I, I, by no means, I think it's a perfect movie. I think yeah. it, it, uh, it came a year after Silence of the Lambs. We, we're also past the 80s where slashes are just like, what's going to keep the people in the seats? Blood, gore, and boobs, and let's go. Yeah. Like, And so <laughs> when you're trying to make a seriously toned film that has commentary that is based off of Clive Barker's story, which we'll get into Clive Barker as well, but when you're adapting that and you're trying to make it feel like a thriller for the first half and 
have the viewer question if they are watching the movie they think they're going to be watching and almost become a story of denial and doubt and you have to be heavy on dialogue yeah and i you're right i think sometimes the scenes don't have the people who are capable like when you when you're working with a kid Mm -hmm. like you're gonna have moments that are not the best because kid actors just aren't as adept to yeah do those kind of long dialogue scenes and that that kid was almost a little like too cute for this role like the way he talked i was like oh this yeah. kid's adorable they need somebody a little bit more like <laughs> like life is shit on him you know i think they did the best with what they could yeah um i'm just you're always waiting for the next thing so like when they go to the dinner scene where the professor is telling helen about the atrocity that happened and like you get that lighting on her eyes and then she kind of yeah. goes in that trance then yeah she goes and talks to uh Anne marie mm-hmm. um about what happened to ruthie jean and like those moments they build but then there mm-hmm. yeah there are these lingering middling shots where it's like yeah well now we got to get her to the bathroom yeah <laughs> now we got to get her to talk to the police chief yeah and now we got to get her and it's like we're just getting to the next getting. part yeah and that so i didn't care for that and then i really really did not care for the, the ending i thought the ending was a little too slasher movie for me do you mean okay so i mean listener we're probably gonna end up spoiling more of this so if you haven't seen this movie <laughs> i i do encourage everybody to pause and watch it's only an hour and a half yeah it almost feels like it's doing a silence of the lands meets slasher where you're you're yeah. gonna see the post effect on certain things um which again is some amazing gore effects but which is which sometimes is scarier because it leaves the the imagination imagination like that dog's head on the ground you're like oh shit spoiler yeah yeah for that yeah but that's not like but like that one and then there's another scene where you see the aftermath of who was just murdered and you're like fuck jesus yeah and Um, i thought it did a really good job at that because you're a you're a big horror fan you know like a lot of horror movies in the 90s were kind of weak yeah. And 90s uh, is probably one of the weakest era. It's like yes, that's why Scream was almost like a parody of what the horror Well, genre I do want to I do want to say what we are talking about though is slasher movies because mm-hmm. slashers being a subgenre of horror the 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 height of a slasher the slasher movies was like 1980 to 1984. Yeah. Uh, and that's even just like exaggerating that a little bit. I think it's like the 82. Then the rest are getting all those really bad sequels. And then, yeah, we're pretty much done in the 90s. Child's Play is the only one left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even that takes a break. And so this is the first one that kind of says, okay, we can do a different type of slasher. And then, yeah, Scream comes out and says, hey, look how fucking stupid slashers can be. But we're mm-hmm. going to make it better because we're going to call out all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we were still getting really quality movies, but just different than what audiences were looking for. So we were getting Silence of the Lambs. We, we did get the miniseries. We are getting Stephen King adaptations. We are getting Exorcist 3 comes out. You're getting different levels. And then what's ironic is that once Scream comes out, everybody goes, back to slashers! And you're like, god damn it, no, that's not what we yeah. were trying to say. But you're right. Yeah. that It almost becomes a parody. It, so I'm curious, one, pause, listener, go watch it if you haven't seen it. Or yeah. keep going and we'll spoil it and you'll be able to feel comfortable. <laughs> but Spoil that 31-year-old movie. Right. You know, I always feel that way. It's, yeah. it, it's going off a tangent. When is it okay? Yeah. I say once it's on home video... Mm-hmm. I think it's fair game. I agree. And um, you've, you've even said that to me, like uh, when YouTube spoiled Ghostbusters Afterlife, but it was like four months after it yeah. came out. You know, 
you've lost yeah especially in an era now of, of information being everywhere i think we have like a two-month shelf life that you can really hold off but if yeah. you want to see something and you're mad they haven't seen it within two months yeah that is on you for not going to do something but anyways especially um, for such like a iconic movie like like i'm on wikipedia right now like it's bravo's 100 scariest movie moments if somebody gets mad at us for spoiling Candyman on this podcast it's like well then go get mad at bravo too yeah go, I, go get mad at bloody disgusting's top 13 slashers and horror you know like yeah it's a classic people have been spoiling it for decades yeah um but are you but are you referring to the way that helen is killed in the end or are you referring to the aftermath of her with trevor so i i liked the way that she died i thought that scene was awesome but i didn't care for the aftermath i thought the scene at her funeral when everybody who lived in the uh the projects or whatever the apartment cabrini um, green yep yes when they come up and like what what do they put on her grave they again? give her the hook the hook, that's right. It, I don't know how I felt about that. And then when she comes back, spoiler, and kills her husband, that to me felt too slashery. And I think this movie did such a good job of avoiding cliches like that. That's like what I was going to get at. Like At this point, slasher movies, as we were talking about, kind of became a parody of themselves. And I thought this movie stood out from that. And that ending just felt a little too like what movies were like at that time yeah and i don't know if that is just because they had to add that as the like slasher gotcha because ironically yeah. enough there are two sequels and they both just involve Candyman. they don't involve helen yeah. um but or to my knowledge um because i have not seen those um <laughs> but i do i think it's just because I guess it's the like age old additive of like if you want me to be the monster, I'm gonna be the monster. It's like I mean there was an article by Rolling Stone that the way they phrase on the bottom is like uh Candyman's scary because it reveals how deftly we condemn each other, you know? That's I think yeah. that's a really interesting point, a way to go into even more depth with Cabrini Green and, you know Yeah. Poor people just in general and people who are down on their luck and also different races and things. But it's also like I guess it just shows that Candyman was right in a sense of like, you know, we're going to live on forever in infamy. And she has been passed the torch to be yeah. that new urban legend because there is now a story of this woman who went crazy in Chicago and she killed this uh, person. She went to a mental institution and escaped and killed the psychiatrist. And like, they're like the story of Candyman has gone. Like yeah. He is no like to them. He is not a thing, but like he, he Candyman will live on with her through her, mm-hmm. and yeah, it is very slashery. But like as we've seen through the movie, at that forty-five minute mark, that's what Candyman was as well. Yeah, he was the writing on the wall. He was the whispers, and when he has to sh- prove that he exists, he does it in that way. Yeah. And when you get called out, and it, it is cheesy, but I think if you strip back the story, that's what it is as well. Yeah, and so I don't think it's like, oh, gotcha, she's with. Like, I feel like it'd been cheesier if both her and Candyman are there, and they're like, now we're a duo. It's like now yeah. her being the only one is different, you know? Yeah, I thought the funeral scene was cheesy, though. I thought that was honestly the cheesiest part of the movie. That the it, whole because yeah, it almost like in a way 
it changed the themes of the movie. But that was just my opinion. Because I felt like a lot of it was kind of um, taking aside the African-American themes in it. A lot of it felt like it was kind of like a view on the white savior. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, yes, that's And how she was doing too much. And then she got in too deep, you know? And then she dies because of it. But then that funeral scene made it just feel like she was the white savior for them. See, I – yes and no. She is now – like they are now a congregation – like that was her congregation. But it is now that she is – because I don't – like – because in that regard then, would you say Candyman is a savior? Because she is just being put in that same box. Pun, no pun intended. I honestly don't know. It was really hard sometimes to read what the themes were. Right. Because they are portraying what's the name of the the complex again? Cabrini Green. So they're they're portraying them in a very human way. They're not portraying them like so many movies would where they're thieves and they're druggies. They're just people trying to make an honest living. They're and trying, I, I trying do to want live to, their life. I and love I the note in that was, movie when she says like Everybody thinks like we're just like yeah no the police don't come down here, and like when we I called nine one one multiple times I heard a murder next door and nobody came like they're damned again we're mm-hmm. so quick to damn and just project what we think we know I still think that can be there mm-hmm. um, it's just yeah again she is now the mythos of that that project yeah and it's but- it's kind of it's I think it would have been. I, I think I would have liked it more if just the kid was there. Yeah. I think having the entire group. But again, I guess it's just... I don't even know what the message is trying to be there. But you I I think, yeah, the, it's just a, a proverbial passing of the torch in a sense. But yeah. I think, yeah, I think it could have been done a little bit better, I guess. I wonder, I, I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts and opinions on that. I, I agree. And that like that's why when I texted yesterday, I said I had thoughts. I wanted to hear your thoughts, too. Because there's some stuff that like I'm still trying to ponder... What I was saying a few minutes ago, like, it portrays all the people that live there in a very human way, but then Candyman is portrayed as a killer, like a vicious, vicious killer. So, like, sometimes I was trying to figure out what the the message was trying to be. You know what I mean? Because he definitely was not a savior. (laughs) Right, and I think that is just... it's, It's the, again, the additive of, like... I am the monster that you've made me out to be. Yeah. Um, and I to live on in infamy is more than to just live on as a human. That's what he says. Like, you know, mm-hmm. your death is going to be divine and it'll be painful. Mm-hmm. But you're going to live on forever through the whispers on the wall and the paintings and everything. And it's, it's very – it's – it is in a sense that urban legend that kind of keeps people – you know, I guess just in your little corners. And is it is it in a sense an excuse for some people that oh we can never change because this or are you or is it the outward world damning that area going, Oh, well that you know, they have a candy man that's there and it's scary because of that and it's like, yeah, you look on there, it's like, no, like we're just human beings and yeah. If you take away the fact that the slasher villain we get that and they mention it, oh the gangs run this territory that you mm-hmm. can't go in there because there's gangs and they say that there's drugs, there's violence and you walk in and Yes, there's some people on the ground, but like when you go upstairs, it's like, oh yeah, nope, this is just a woman trying to raise a child. Yeah, and it's Candyman in a sense is just the as you see with another person, 
is just the ends to a means for some people to just be like, get away from my area. This is my or, yeah. or stay away from that area because it's again it's that urban legend of like that's the old uh, blah blah blah's house and it's mm-hmm. they were people were murdered there and this it's like there's always more to the story. Yeah, and you know, listening to you say all that, I kind of also just pieced it all together. Came to the conclusion it could be the stereotype mm-hmm. that they're recognized, like that people push on them. At the end of the movie, that could have been them killing the stereotype, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I do want to say another thing is, uh, it's because we get some backstory, and again, this is how legend started. It's uh, this is again that article from Rolling Stone, where it's it's weird to watch. Came in twenty eighteen when Chicago gets trotted out as, as Journal House uh, cautionary tale, the exemplar of everything that is wrong about black inner cities in America. Mm-hmm. You know, the racism that got this character killed in the eighteen ninety is the same one that powered uh, slavery and prejudices and stereotypes that led twentieth century political scholars to cook up super, the term super predator. Um, the most discomforting thing about this movie is how the title character relishes in his role as a malevolent immortal. We don't yes. know if he was a decent man in his past life, and we are left to wonder if that was just the circumstances of his death that turned him evil, or if he was. And so that's from that article by Rolling Stone. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, where the racial prejudices and stereotypes that were there in the past are still prevalent. And that's mm-hmm. where Cabrini Green, you even hear about with Helen, she says, my apartment is the same apartment like mm-hmm. block for block they just put plaster on the walls to make it look better yeah um so why is it that mine cost x amount of dollars and when you go to cabrini green it costs next to nothing it's because of political divides that have been literally built there is no like literal physical divide it mm-hmm. is just you live over there now that is a downtrodden area yeah. and it's we we literally put people in boxes and I think that kind of is part of the story mm-hmm. where you're damning an entire – in this movie, in a sense, race. And then you're also looking at those people that live there. And Candyman is the same way. He's been damned to this eternity. Mm-hmm. And do you – there are certain people that are trying to get out of that mold. Mm-hmm. He's the one that, He's trying to stay in it. And it's like it's – Again, commentary. Oh, you know, you're gonna hear the planes. Listen, I did mention that to Max beforehand. I forgot to say, the air and water show is happening this weekend. So if you hear anything in the background, I truly apologize. Uh, those are planes. <laughs> Anywho, uh, I don't even know where I was at. I liked what you were going with, though, because yeah. that's like I I read that same Rolling Stone art, article. I read a few other articles, and mm-hmm. like I'm just trying to piece together a lot of the themes in the movie because they don't spell it out for you. And I think that's okay, though. No, that's I love when movies do that, and it makes sense why pe- like a lot of audiences back in 1992 thought this movie was racist because they don't spell it out for you. You're supposed to read into it and realize what the movie was trying to say. So I appreciated everything you just had to say. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, going off of really quick that point, some uh, some audiences thinking that it was racist in a sense. This movie was um, he Bernard uh, Bernard went to. Uh, get everything not not he didn't go somewhere physically but like the NAACP helped work with him mm-hmm. to make sure that you know the themes and things were there that it wasn't overtly racist and again there are things that fall into stereotypes uh, you know territory um, there are gang members on the bottom of Cabrini Green which I guess a fun cool note 
I not I don't know how to really phrase that. Um, those are actual gang members who lived in that area, <laughs> and they got approval to film at Cabrini Green, which is where they filmed. They filmed yeah. in that project, which is now torn down in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to dub over their lines because they didn't give them lines to say. Wow. Yeah, but so that is those are actual um, people who lived there. I love that. Yeah. Um, but this brings up. What I was gonna, I asked you earlier. You saw the remake, right? Yes. What is your opinion on the remake? I haven't seen it yet, but what is your opinion? It's a mixed bag, because the message is still there. Uh I still think it's important. Um, It now does not have a white savior, which I think is important as Mm -hmm. we now go through time and realize that that trope. And I I, I do kind of want to mention something real quick before we kind of dive deeper towards that. You know, I'll say it afterwards. I would like to. I would like to, I guess, not explain, but just kind of make a note of what that trope is. Because I don't know if everybody is aware of what that is. Mm-hmm. I think when you're in, I don't want to say in the know, but when you pay attention to movies like, like we do and people that study film and watch film, you can kind of key in on that trope. Uh, and we'll talk about it after I mentioned about this candy man, but I want to mention that we're going to talk about that because I, I don't want people to be listening going, I don't know what that is. Um, yeah. I do. I like that it's where it's getting a modern take. It got a modern take. Mm-hmm. I like that. I don't like that those themes are still fucking prevalent. Like it's ridiculous yeah. that again we're going. We go a hundred years between in this movie, the Candyman's death and racial divides that still exist, and then now we're thirty years later and we're still fucking dealing with it. Yeah, like that's frustrating that we have to keep. Hounding this message, this article, uh, one of them is, um, you know, before Get Out, we had this, and it's like, yeah, why do yeah. we still have two very similar movies in a sense, mm-hmm. and why is this still prevalent twenty years later when the time of the article was written? But just like, like, just like, do the right thing. Exactly, like, I think it's the movie still has that. However, I just am not a fan. I, I really love this movie. And when you have a remake, it doesn't do a shot for shot remake, and it it definitely pays homage. Um, I just don't think it's as good as it could have been. Okay, but that's just because it's again, it's like it's remaking something that's great. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to give me something that is, and I and I feel like I might also be in the minority in that, where there might be a lot of people that really like the new one, and that's okay. Yeah. I just think personally. It's not my favorite retelling of a story. Okay. Because I don't know if it does enough to retell. Okay. Well, I was just curious. Yeah. I'd like to watch it because the original <coughs> movie has the themes of race. and But at the end of the day, the original movie was written and directed by a white man. Right. So knowing that the remake was directed, written, produced by African Americans makes me interested because they probably grew up watching this movie right loving it and thinking i'm unfortunately (laughs) these themes are still prevalent in this country i want to take it and put this modern twist on it with my experiences that i've had growing up and i that's why i think it's one of the rare movies where i applaud the idea of a remake no i i agree the quality of it it's just like i think that somebody could put a fresh twist on it you know well that's again that's why i'm I'm saying like it's fine like i think 
Move, some movies and some messages deserve to be consistently told. Yeah. And I think, again, sadly, the, and this, the, 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 um, the, see, the, the, see, the remake focuses a little bit more on the police side of things. Sadly, again, Maltu yeah. State, and again, this movie was released in 92, which is peak, literally during the Rodney King riots. Yeah. And so we look now and we're looking at similar issues in different states and areas. And so that's where this this story had a venue to sadly be told again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for new eyes because there are some people who will not watch the movie because it is older. I mean, and I that's not because it's a horror movie. I mean, I know one of, I mean, he's been on the podcast, David, he's mentioned that like his daughter will not watch movies that are before 2000 because he's like, yep. those just don't, don't look the way I want movies to look. And that's a lot of people. And if you're listening to that saying, that's ridiculous. Have you watched a movie from the 1950s? Have you watched a movie from the 1930s? <laughs> if you're listening saying, oh no, it's technically the same deal. Yeah. Like whenever you were born, think 30 years or 27 years ago, like, that is similar <laughs> viewpoint if you're looking at time. Yeah, and sometimes it's honestly I I have seen a lot of movies like classic films of that era, but sometimes it is difficult, like a movie before the '60s. Yeah, you know, and that's okay. But as I'm saying, so it depends on what the story is trying to say. That's why when I think it was talking to Stephen and Liz, and this is going way off tangent, but about Lord of the Rings. Yes. And like, would you ever like to be remade? And they're like, no, no, no. I was like, everything can be remade. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's going to be the same. It doesn't take away what we had. Like, fuck, The Wizard of Oz has been remade. Yeah. Like, if we if we can remake that, one of the most iconic stories of all, like, we can retell Lord of the Rings. Like, and we'll be fine. Yeah. It's like Candyman being retold is fine. And yes, it's still have that attachment. I, I just think, as a film, I like this one more. Fair enough. Yeah. But anyways, going that, beyond, beyond that, that, I do want to mention real quick. Yeah. It was based off of a short story, but The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. And Clive Barker is an iconic, with a capital I, horror writer. Yes. Um, his two most notable um, pieces of work is this and Hellraiser are the two really big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been writing a British author um, – and also, what's great is other voices in horror. He's uh, he's part of the LGBTQ community, so we're getting uh, more unique voices in horror. Mm-hmm. And he's been one of the biggest since the what early '80s. Um, so read up on that. And but that story, it was a similar story where it was a uh, student who was studying the mythical Candyman, but it was a message on British classism. Mm-hmm. It and, took place in Liverpool, right? Yes, and uh, which is where I believe Clive grew up. So that's okay. It's his connection there. Uh, Bernard took that, and that's how you pronounce his name. I'm getting better I'm with pronouncing. Been, I've been saying Bernard. So was I, yeah. But so I just want to tell the listener, if they're like, why did you say it that way? Yeah. It's, it's Bernard Rose. Um, but he took it and wanted to bring it to uh, a more – I guess just relatable in a sense for American audiences. And that's why you get it taking place in Chicago and you get it taking place in this project there. And that's where he went through the channels trying to work with the NAACP to try to, to get all that, I guess in the most, I don't want to say approved, but I guess in the most correct way, the, the correct way to tell that story. And even still, again, it's the way you go about things. You might have the right intentions, 
mm-hmm. but the wrong message comes out, just like the character in the movie, just like, as we're going to talk about now briefly, the white savior trope. Yes. Which is a trope that has happened in films and, I guess, even books and different types of media for centuries, where it is just the – and I, th- I think the biggest one that the people think about recently is it was a green book. Yes. Where it's like, yeah, uh, this man's going to teach about music, and he's going to teach about living in the South, and he's going to teach about – it's like, why do we need – why does it need to be a white person teaching uh, any sort of person of color um, from any different area of life or of the world how to do things and how to like be saved from where they're at? Yep. It's I didn't even know about the trope. Like I didn't know how to name whatever until yeah. probably ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's made me look at a lot of movies that I loved in a different light. I'm trying to think I'm gonna look up some examples of ones that I can give to people. Yeah. Um, this one again I Cool think, Runnings. <laughs> yeah. Cool <laughs> Yeah. I love that movie, but oh dear. Uh, Avatar in a sense. They just use it with fucking blue people from space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna pull up some other ones here that are in here. A blue, a blue person from space played by an African American woman. So yeah, Twelve Years a math. Slave, Forty Two, The Blind Side is now one that's kind of more oh, yeah. common that's, because of that's the poster child. Yeah, there's just you can look up many yeah. and just look up white saver, but um, just know that it is something that is there in a lot of movies. That again, you don't really realize what it is until you look at it and go, oh yeah, yeah. why is it? that a white person is doing all this and that's mm-hmm. where the remake changes that mm-hmm. um so yeah that's an annoying trope yeah and basically any movie that your parents would be like oh my gosh that was so good <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least that's my experience <laughs> you know did you see dances with wolves yeah did you see Gran torino <laughs> oh that's <laughs> that's a big one right there yeah because if anybody's gonna change um, the world, it's, it's 87 year old white. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what a fucking movie. Talk about a horror movie. No, and that's the problem is some of those movies are good. Like that movie has some good elements, but it just falls back on that trope, you know? And I do want to just say just because a movie might have that trope or any other trope, yeah. it doesn't mean the movie's bad or you can't enjoy it. But mm-hmm. as a viewer, I think it's important. And that's what this podcast and you and I and everybody that's been on here has talked about. It's just important to recognize mm-hmm. and understand and then see, okay, when those things come out, when you can call out when it's objectively bad, when you can see when the movie is trying to say something but it's doing it in a weird way. Like I don't want people to feel upset if they like Dances with Wolves. Or yeah. I don't want people to feel upset if they like Avatar, which is the same movie but with blue people. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it's important to look at that and say, oh, okay. And I some of them are true stories. Like I think Cool Runnings has a sense of like some true story aspect to yeah. it. But again, it's all exaggerated because it's a Disney movie and it's got John Candy in it. Yeah. But like, It's a delightful film. Exactly. And I think that's an important thing to say. Yeah. And I do want to just say, is it ironic that two white American males are telling you this? Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> um, and if we are wrong, I am always open to hearing, obviously, different, different, not opinions, but viewpoints. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I just think that trope is very important. And this movie is no different. This yeah. movie has that. But again, there's a level of how it's technically 
not is yeah. like I because at the end of the day, I don't know if she saves anything besides a baby. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It, that's why, like, I'm not 100% sold on my opinion about that. It's something I'd ha- maybe I'd have to watch the movie again. Maybe I'd yeah. have to read, read deeper. But at face value, that's what it felt like. You yeah. Know? Well, what I because, again, in this, I mean, she technically is the only one that has brought the the fake Candyman to, like, basically gives a te- testifies and says, like, yeah, that's the guy who did it. Um, so I guess that regard. But it doesn't change the horrors that are happening because literally a little bit later, she's now the killer of that area. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's in a sense, I mean, she kills a dog, which still, but yeah, it's yeah. Again, we are not equipped to talk about it in depth like that. And I like that. We just do try to dive right into it. However, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's something with multiple viewings. And I, I would like to do some more research. You mentioned that you read a couple articles. I had Rolling Stone. I had one, um, an essay that was written, um, by the haunty culturalist <laughs> it's called white fright um can't even explain the ringer had one i read one on fangoria fangoria was talking a little bit more about the uh the white savior trope and how it's kind of exaggerated um and as i think it was the two people of color that were in that article were talking about how it was a little bit much yeah so again that's where different viewpoints i think is always interesting but other let's where do we take this conversation now is my question i guess because we did we we did that's why like when you when i texted you this idea you like were very excited for it but you were like are you ready for a deep conversation i was like hell yeah so like i i've been in the conversation we're having and like i don't know where to take it from here other than the fact that like we've covered a lot and honestly it might be our most mature episode to date and i'm proud of that but i think but i think this movie that's that's what's so fascinating about this movie is there are so many different approaches people can take to it and we both have our own we both have like opinions that match up but then reading all these articles like every single art i've read probably four articles every single one of them have different opinions on how it approaches race so that's what's so fascinating about this movie and that's why it stuck out like a sore thumb in the early 90s of slasher gatcher bullshit you know it's not it wasn't your average oh look at the candy man with a hook he's coming to kill us it wasn't that type of movie it had a lot more to say and i'm really glad you keep comparing it to um silence of the lambs while i prefer that movie over this one i think they're in the same genre of horror yeah except this one's a little bit more gruesome they're, they're definitely in that same just unsettling genre yeah, they're they're thrillers that have us that have that potential slasher backbone there, and whereas Silence of the Lambs has maybe one scene where I mean, you literally get him slashing people up, but then you get mm-hmm. the moment of the the police guard like in the jail cell, almost like filleted, which is yeah. a haunting scene. The um, image will never leave my mind. <laughs> which uh, then I talk about images that never leave your mind. There are multiple images in this that same yep. thing, like when. Uh, her friend is literally just gutted and then left like that and how it flashes that like Mm -hmm. it's gruesome and again it shows from like this we get these moments of urban legends like oh yeah and he did this and he got her from her uh, as he says groin to your gullet um and his oh (laughs) 
Did you hear that? Uh, I heard that. Yep. Yeah, but um, it's like, not like you're at an airport. <laughs> I feel like it. Um, but like that his his voiceover is and his voice in general. I feel like they changed the audio on it so it is more booming and bassful yeah. and like sounds almost like because I when I had my my soundbar, I was watching it uh, later at night because Teresa was at bed and I I know she doesn't want to watch it. I had the sound down, but anytime the music or Tony Todd came on, it was on a higher level. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it was really like, oh yeah, we t- we tuned this um, to be different um, when they, they were doing sound did. mixing, which I think is fascinating. But oh yeah, totally. And you um, know what? It, speaking of, sorry to interrupt. You're fine. Movies that were influenced by it, it really reminded me of the voice of the devil at the end of the witch. Yeah, it just has this weird way that it's recorded and like leveled that just sinks into you. Would sound like, like to live deliciously? Out of you. Oh, yeah. Anywho, go on. Yeah, but um, I yeah I think yeah, where the Silence of the Lambs it only shows that every now and again. like this one it builds up that urban legend you hear and you go oh I might not be true it might be true and then when you see it in yeah. that moment of dread where she's like no don't come in here and then she, her friend goes in and is just staring face to face with him. Yeah. Oh, it's and then like it's terrifying. And then the part that I thought was very strange to me, mm-hmm. when the cops show up and her husband is there, they just left the body out, <laughs> and everybody's just next to this like mutilated corpse, and they're just like, yeah, well, we're just waiting for Helen to wake up, and then we're they, gonna go. They kind of forget about her. It's just so no, like her husband just sitting there on the couch, and then you pan down, and there is just like. A mutilated woman, not covered in a sheet. Yeah. Just out. <laughs> yeah. And they're all like, you want some coffee? I will say, uh, on a funny note, her name is Bernadette, her Bernadette. friend, right? When she shows up to the apartment and she's at the door, she looks exactly like that woman from Dumb and Dumber. Yes. Who, uh, like, goes on a date with Harry. Samsonite. Or, like, yeah. She looks exactly like her. And, like, yeah. there was, Bree and I were watching it. And I said that during the movie, and Bree just goes, yes! Like, the way her hair is, her coat, her hat. It's the flower she, hat, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flowers then, uh, with her hat, yeah. So, yeah, I, just a funny little side note. Well, funny little side note. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bernadette's death is tragic. And, yeah. um, again, a, a voice on um, Helen's side where it's like, do not pursue this. You know it's only going to go down from here. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that twist in the middle, that's the scene that has stuck with me the most in terms of just, like, scary. Because it it's not, not only does it change the course of the movie, but, like, because there were so many fake-out scares, my head went to this place during the first half of the movie where I was like, is this going to be one of those things where he doesn't actually exist, where he doesn't actually exist and it's just in her head? And in that moment, I was like, oh, shit. Uh, he exists. <laughs> yeah, and his like slow walk and like how he says yeah. Helen and what I like if you watch it, he he's not speaking. Mm-hmm. If you look at his mouth when he's talking to Helen, the only time he actually says it's all in her head. Yeah, and she's speaking out, and then when he says "be my victim," that is when he finally like moves his lips and speaks to yeah. her. Yeah. Um, and then another part. So as much as I complained about how I felt the ending. Asher. There was one moment that felt like a slasher movie, but I fucking loved it. When the hook comes through the mirror. 
Oh, it got me so giddy. It just felt like a Friday the 13th movie. I love that part. Fun note, <laughs> um, Virginia Madsen did not know that was going to happen. And Tony Todd really? felt really bad about that. And That's he was like, awesome. I don't want to scare her. And they almost – it was almost going to be a different actor. And he was like, no, no, no. I'll do it. And then he did it. Scared her. And then like had to like profusely apologize. He's like, I don't, I don't want to like – harm you or scare you but yeah i love that i didn't know that that's delightful it's a wonderful scare and that's the thing it's like one of the only jump scares yeah and what's great is that it sets up for you to think that the mirror will close and he's going to be there mm-hmm. but it jumps right before yeah it like it's again it takes that trope and subverts it a little bit where it's like oh i think you're going to get that class where she opens the medicine cabinet and you go up. Oh. and i'm proud to be this episode's brought to you by the american air force seriously um (laughs) but yeah it's um it takes some of those tropes and subverts them where it is like oh your typical slasher be like you heard the story of jason who drowned in this lake and then he just walks around and starts killing immediately no this one takes that and goes yeah well that clearly could all just be story and Mm -hmm. then you finally get it so it takes those little things and again it earns it the one that gets me every time is when she's talking to the psychiatrist and then she says this five times. It's like, oh, he's going to show up. And then just like all you see is just hook, go straight through this guy's body. And then he's yeah. like, oh. It's it's pretty awesome. And that's the first time you see – because you normally just hear the squelching and like the, yeah. the hook go through. And it's like, no, like you are going to watch this man get Ugh. murdered. And then Candyman frames her for it, sets her up. And I was like, you're mine now. Like it's over. Like this is yeah. – this was your chance, in a sense, and now you're not safe. And then literally goes through the window in a wire stunt, which you can't see the wire. But it doesn't matter. I, it's, yeah, almost, uh, that was where it feels like Dracula, where he just, like, yeah. flies backwards. Oh, mm-hmm. so great. I think we covered this movie very nicely. I think there's some I, more horror stuff that I would like to briefly mention. Go for it. I do think, again, if you're talking about gore, I think... The way this movie, and I guess the way it's filmed, the way this movie uses the flash of the camera to quickly mm-hmm. splice in, like, there's a moment where she's walking around taking pictures, and every time it flashes, if you're watching it, it is just Candyman's face, that painting. Yeah. Haunting. I love the set oh, design yeah, of the movie. Oh, yeah, that painting. Yeah, that painting is, is I don't think burned. That's what nightmares are made of. <laughs> right, exactly. That's really what this is. <laughs> yeah. Um But, I do, and then... I had another point that I wanted to bring up. Um, yeah, Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen are amazing. We've talked about their performances. Um, she she's really good. I kept like thinking it was Julianne Moore. Because yeah. they look a lot alike. They do. But then I had to keep reminding myself, no, it's the girl from uh, Sideways. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, and you're like, well, okay. Different movie. Very different yeah. movie. But I was like, that's her. It's not Julianne Moore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought she did a good job. Um. I'm trying. Yeah, I, the, I guess. Yeah, the horrific elements of this movie beyond just like racial damnation and uh, public damnation of people, and mm-hmm. you know how you can be just vilified for things out of your control, which is literally what happens to Helen, um, and to many of the characters in this movie. It's a it's a great proto slasher in a sense where it is one, but it's not, mm-hmm. and. Besides a couple moments, it doesn't have those sequences where you feel like, oh, man, we are just getting a generic-ass slasher movie. Oh, yeah. Um, did you have any favorite lines or moments of the movie that you – was it the hand just going through the mirror? Or? I loved that part. I love the painting. Like, for what we've already mentioned, that was just 
so unsettling. I love the first time that they go into the building and you just feel this sense of dread like anything could happen. I love that whole sequence. Um, as much as I complained about the ending, I did love the part where she climbs up to save the baby and they set it on fire. There was just something so memorable and profound about that scene. And the score just coming over. Exactly. Um, the score, which I already mentioned, uh, that twist in the middle, I loved. So yeah, there was, I, there was a lot to really appreciate about this movie and, um, I'm glad I watched it because it's been on my list for years, um. During the quarantine, Bree and I did Freaky Fridays, where we'd watch a scary movie every well, that's Friday. Fun. And this one was on my list because I think it was on Netflix at the time. So I kept bringing it up, kept bringing it up, and it just never happened. So when you were talking about a spooky season movie, I was like, let's do it. I'm totally in. Let's watch this movie, you know? What other so. movies did you watch on those Freaky Fridays? Do you remember any of them? Um, we watched The Descent, we watched oh. Scream. Well, we yeah, watched... I'm proud <laughs> of Scream. Scream which... was my. Was my uh my uh, addition to that that was the first one we did i think it was scream that's what started we watched the so anyways scream the descent the ring uh cabin in the woods which let's be honest that's more of a comedy yeah but i i, I think that was after the ring which the ring it's not as scary as it was when i was in middle school but it does have that sense of dread that just gets under your skin i've always wanted to watch ringu which is the japanese version which i've heard is so much scarier but i think we watched cabin of the woods after the ring because you know (laughs) we were quarantined we had nothing else to do so it was kind of like let's let's have a good laugh that was me i was watching two films a day because i was bored (laughs) yep um i remember studying for my teacher tests the mttc and i would just go over note cards and just turn on so many movies in the background i think i watched like the Karate Kid trilogy. <laughs> As one, one does when they're filming. <laughs> but, um, so, what else? Eraserhead, which, um, repulsed me at the time but as yeah. the years have gone on that may have been one of the best horror movies i've ever seen yeah i mean that's a, a different level of horror movie yeah um, it's nuts yes. but that okay so like like i said it repulsed me at the time but the more I've thought about it over the past couple of years, I don't know if I want to watch it again because it's so intense, but it was amazing. And like I said when we started this episode, I liked Candyman. I didn't love it. But I think the more I think about it and having this conversation, I think I'm going to appreciate it more. And, I, and that's I, why I'm glad I watched it. And that's why I'm glad we did this episode and had this conversation. I'm always glad when people say that because that's always the goal is mm-hmm. to – and I get people that will reach out and be like, oh, yeah, I, I watched this because you told me uh, that you I should or you recommend it. I mean Morgan and Jamie do that all the time. They're on the podcast with it. And I just love sharing movies and sharing that and I think it's always great when someone says, you know what? I might not have loved it right now but it sticks with me and we think about it mm-hmm. and I appreciate it. And that's the thing is just appreciating it because um, I think this movie – has so many layers that deserve to be praised Mm -hmm. um it has areas that should be criticized and that is okay that is the complexity of a medium that is film and any sort of studying right exactly art should not be universally praised it should not be universally panned there is always a middle ground that's there's always a thing where like i don't ever mention this really on the pod but one i also watched um i want to point out I, i talk about them all the time dead meat um my favorite youtube channel they cover a lot of horror movies they also do podcasting i recommend listening to them he covered Candyman, and he shared the same sentiment which is like i am not qualified to talk about this but i want to point out the the history and i want to show the 
great special effects and the movie making and I want to show that whole process and also mm-hmm. while getting to the kills and the fun stuff. But they will say, and I've mentioned it, I believe on the pod once or twice, where it's like, if I ever shit on a movie or shit on a, an actor or an actress or a director or whatever, they still made something. Yeah. You know, they still made I have not. I have not been in those things. I have tried to act and it is not great and that's okay. Like, <laughs> But like they've made something so there always is a benefit. And when I joke about like, oh, actors, these ones suck. I'm like, no, like it's always just a running joke. Like they're like – but that's – things can be criticized and that's important. Yeah. And I'm glad that you can take that away and go, you know, I might not have loved it right now but I'm going to think about it. It might add these things. But I wanted to mention mm-hmm. one point. Another reason why this movie has a different layer to it um, – in the 1980s, there was an um, actual murder in a Chicago housing project called uh, – uh, her name was Ruthie Mae McCoy, similar to Ruthie Jean in the movie, um, where the – she was – in 1987 was killed by an intruder who entered her apartment through an opening behind the bathroom's medicine cabinet. Yeah. Like that is a true thing that happened. It is horrible. Uh, and that story was then, as you can tell in this movie, where she mentions like, yeah, when this was built, like – you push this mirror through and you push that mirror through and that how that one's abandoned over there. Like that is how it works. And like again, when she's in her home, uh, Bernadette goes, Oh my god, that's so scary. What if someone's over there? She's like, No, no one's over there, it doesn't matter. To them, it doesn't matter because they're in a safe area that they feel like they spend a lot of money and it's that's the area that they've the bubble they put themselves in. Conversely, you look at when they're over in uh Cabrini Green and uh Anne Marie is like I'm scared because I don't know when, like, I might be next because I want to raise a child here and I have no safety in my own home. And they, again, are the same exact homes. And that message can't be overlooked where it's as simple as just, like, where you are can dictate so many differences even though your lives are exactly the same. Yeah. Like, it's so tragic and uh, and not fast – I guess fascinating to look at that and say, oh, like – how again you can be just damned by your circumstances that come into play and so um that was i think is a very important thing to mention we didn't mention that it was based off Mm -hmm. of or not based off but that was added layer to it yeah um and fun a weird note um the filmmakers couldn't afford their first choice for Candyman. do you know who the first (laughs) choice was our man Eddie Murphy. Eddie, what this movie? Edward Murphy. Edward Edward Murphy. Um, <laughs> this movie, I don't think would be good. Uh, yeah, no, he's too funny. He and doesn't mention have... that was like his peak comedy days. Seriously. So, like, I know he can do dramatic stuff, but at that time, he was way too funny. <laughs> yeah, he you was know? way. Yeah, he was not built for this role. It's not like Rob uh, Rob Williams. Uh, and yeah. Jim Carrey in a sense where they were mixing in casual, like, here's a really, you know, powerful, poignant role. No, Eddie Murphy was like, comedy, 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 comedy. And Tony yep. Todd was the right one. But I, I, what's funny is I, I mentioned earlier that he wanted uh, – Tony Todd really wanted to do this because he said he's he's always wanted to find his own personal Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Which I think is uh, – he, he had that level to the role where he wanted to make that gothic love story. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I love this movie. Um, and like I said, it's always one that I will watch and it's, it's not just your typical slasher. There's a level of, I, every time I watch, it, I think of something new. 
mm-hmm. and I, I do more research. And I think doing this episode, I want to thank you for that because I've, I've read, like I mentioned, countless articles. I encourage you, listener, to look up any of those. Like we mentioned, Rolling Stone, I said The Ringer, Fangoria. Um, mm-hmm. Would you say Bloody Disgusting had one? or who was Yes. That? Okay. Uh, um, yeah, looks up some and just see. Um, there's even like thought on like bees because there's mm-hmm. some books about like how bee culture is like the mindset of like how that kind of shapes what we look at like it's like birth of a nation but, like slavery like it's just there's levels and layers to shit that's like and you fucking think about it's nuts yeah um shit i was just about to say something and it it slipped my mind anyways take we- this out <laughs> I was gonna leave that in. Yeah. Um, was it about the articles you were reading? Was it about Tony Todd? Was it about the director? Was it about the commentary? Was it about the kills? Was it about? Oh yeah, I was gonna ask you. So that real life story was that. Um, did that inspire Clive when he was writing the story? No. So that. So Clive wrote this, I believe, in the early eighties. So his was again about British classism. Yes. And, um, it still had that killer, obviously that hook-handed killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that was just another. That was a way to draw it to America and add that killer aspect to it. Okay. That, like, because again, when you think about like, oh my god, the killer could be in walls. Like that is again another urban legend of and a, a horrifying thought to think about when you're you don't feel safe in your home because any time someone could come through your mirror and kill you, it just adds to the level of the story that they're trying to tell and okay. it's another layer of yep okay so if i was going to use cabrini green i'm going to do chicago this is a story that happened in chicago there's your next level to it so now i don't i don't from all my knowledge i don't believe that it was okay. um, but when you're writing that story and bernard rose or bernard rose was writing that um that was just a another layer that was added okay i was just curious yeah um because it's a spooky movie season episode we talked a lot about not like i guess spooky things on a different level um yeah, is there, um, anything else horror related that you want to talk about this one, or you think? Uh, I think we covered it pretty well. Good. I'd like. To, I think I'm going to watch the remake. Or from what I've read, it's more of just a sequel. Yeah, it's a legacy sequel in name and in certain content, but not like here's Virginia Madsen popping up. Yeah. No, it's to spoil it a little bit. Um, you know, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to say anything. Uh, in a sense, it's more of a legacy sequel. Okay. Where the Candyman is still the same aura and mindset and um, backstory and things like that. So, okay. Um, well, I'm going to watch it. I'll let you know what I think. Um, it's funny you brought up Dave Lucas because we had dinner with him. A week I forgot ago. you know Dave Lucas. How yeah, crazy is that? Huh? <laughs> um, we had dinner with him a week ago and we just talked about horror movies for like an hour he's a fun horror movie fan because his view on some stuff is hilarious to me not in a bad way but like some of his takes back this movie takes because i'm like just enjoy how shitty it is yeah (laughs) yeah um but he i think he said he thought the remake was scarier than the original i think it is because and this might sound it takes it's it takes a different stance on like this again is very silence of the lambs yeah where it is a slow burn thriller that doesn't have like 
strange gore and gross effects and like those moments of shock horror there i think the more the newer one is definitely a jordan peele produced horror film like if you've ever seen get out if you've ever seen us um i feel like the beats of horror and those moments are in this movie mm-hmm. and it feels like a more modern horror movie um which can in turn be scarier okay. i don't think i think whereas Candyman, this movie 92 is like you said the the dread that sets in as you're watching it and the subversion of your expectations and the horror that comes from the aftermath Mm -hmm. like watching her get committed and realize that her life is completely destroyed and shattered because of this is horrific in a different nature Mm -hmm. like yes you get those moments in the new one but it's paired with more horrific elements in like a modernized setting where you're getting jump scares where you're getting moments and you're getting these little like and that to some people is scarier whereas like yeah that there there's the difference does that make sense okay no that makes perfect sense um yeah i watched the trailer for it after we watched the original and it definitely looks like it leans more into that jump scare and like i think the original used its horrific imagery perfectly Right, like it didn't beat it over our heads. So when they did show you stuff, you're, it sank in more. But that's so. what I'm saying. Where it's like you clearly know it's in good hands by who's yeah. with it, and with a track record like Jordan and uh, Nita Costa as well, like yeah. you know it's going to be safe from yeah. being like just a jump scary tropey mess. Mm-hmm. But it still nonetheless leans into those um, moments, which is funny because I have loved everything that jordan peele has done um and i don't feel like he leans into that including keanu the cat movie yeah i saw that in theaters because <laughs> that was like right after key and peele went off so like i was still all about key and peele it's it's a silly comedy it makes me honestly I enjoyed it stunned about his i guess just work like yeah. if you literally look at his what he's produced like, I'm going to re- go through these. You have Get Out, mm-hmm. Us, Nope. Those were three movies that he wrote, direct, and produced. Um, then he has Candyman, which he wrote and produced. He was a producer on Black Klansman. Like, yep. crazy. He um, wrote and produced Wendell and Wild, which is a uh, stop-motion animated horror movie um, mm-hmm. with him and uh, Keegan Michael Key, who obviously was a connection with, with Key and Peele. And then, yeah, he wrote and uh, produced Keanu, an action goofy uh, buddy cop movie about a cat. Have you seen that movie? No. <laughs> it's, it's not bad, actually. It's but, a Key and Peele movie. But that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's crazy that we he's a Oscar award winning screenwriter yeah. and is like now, and also like redid The Twilight Zone, like now is one of the most important voices in horror yeah. And will go down as one of the biggest voices in horror. And you can watch him in a fat suit on Key and Peele ordering a pizza. Like, what are we, like, what? It's, it's, it's awesome. Like, it, talk I, about a crazy twist. When Get Out came came out, um, it was like overnight he became a whole new type of celebrity. Yeah. You know? Before it, that, he was hilarious. And then all of a sudden, he's an auteur. And you're like, fuck, Okay. And, if you watch some old Key and Peele sketches, just the way they're filmed, the themes they tackle, the writing, you can see 
like the seeds of what he was going to do later. Like Get Out yeah. feels like it would have been a Key and Peele sketch. He just he tweaked it and made it a movie. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah. I think that's going. I mean, I'm so interested to see where his career goes. Um, I can't wait. I, all three movies he's written and directed, I'm a huge fan of, so I can't yeah. wait to see where he goes. I do want to say something funny. I know we've kind of gone off topic, listener, but we're still talking about horror in a sense. Someone was like, can we just give it up and say uh, Jordan Peele is the best horror director of all time? And everyone was like, no. And then even <laughs> he was like, I'm sorry, John Carpenter exists. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And like, sorry, Alfred Hitchcock is still a person that was in history and we still yeah. had Wes Craven, and we still have Toby Hooper, and we have all these amazing directors and uh, people that have worked with in film. Like, Jordan Peele will go down in the Pantheon, mm-hmm. but he's three for three, but he's got yeah. a long ways to go. I honestly, and I don't like a lot of this director's work, but so far his work has kind of reminded me of more of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. He's like got his start directing, making. I guess M Night Shyamalan had some movies before The Sixth Sense, but you know they got became household names as directors, making their own original horror movie. Right. And the the first three movies M Night did were good. So you got Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs, and it went downhill at the fourth one. So I'm I'm hoping that Jordan Peele can change that. <laughs> I mean, we're, talk, we're talking about some flop like the Twilight Zone reboot that he did was not well received yeah um but again that's tackling a a a well-known horror staple yeah and it wasn't his like baby you know i feel like he was a part of it but it wasn't his baby yeah exactly the stuff that he writes and directs is his voice yeah so that's why going back to the Candyman remake when i heard his name was attached to it i was like oh of course it is you know but then when i found out that he had a hand in the screenplay. I was like, okay, now you're talking my language, you know? Yeah. Like, for example, uh, Black Klansman. That is through and through a Spike Lee movie. I don't know, like, I feel like he produced it, but that was just another name to throw in the poster. Just exactly. people in the theater. So. Which I think is so funny that you need to add another name to Spike Lee's poster. Oh, exactly. Like, huh, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if this new Spike Lee picture is going to be as what I really... This yeah. uh, draw, I guess. I'll go see because Jordan Peele's also there. It's like, no, I just need to see Spike Lee's name on a poster, and I'm probably going to watch anything. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, Max, thank you so much for being on. Um, of course. I cannot wait to see you soon. Yes. Um, it's, it's like gonna... a week and a half away. Ironically, with these type of episodes, it's always about the guest's first time or like the, the focal point of their first time watching it. I remember my first time watching this movie. It was in my film analysis class, mm-hmm. and my favorite class I've ever taken, uh, and we would have every single week was a film genre, and each week on Tuesday, we would discuss a film genre. Mm-hmm. So we would do action adventure, and then the movie we would watch was Indiana Jones. We discussed sci-fi, and the movie that we watched was, um, I was sick that day, but I think it was like Sunshine or something like that. Um, okay. yeah. And uh, we would go back and forth, like musicals, Singing in the Rain. We did horror, and the movie we watched was Candyman. And I remembered Lee, and he talked about the subgenres and slash, and he's like, I picked one that is a blend of both, and it has all these levels and layers. And I remember leaving, and I was like, what the hell was that? Like, so uh, strange, 
and it was a slasher, but it wasn't, and it was a thrill, and this, and then like as we've talked about, yeah. And as time goes on, you sit there and you go, oh, and this little moment comes out, and then I remember rewatching it, and I was like, how did I miss this and that and yeah. this and like, so my first time was watching it in a class with all these people on a Thursday night because Thursday was the day that we rewatched that or watched the movie that was part of the genre, and I was just like, so enthralled but confused and i had questions and i i love when a movie can do that yes. and um yeah it was just it was i I, remember, I rarely can remember the first time i watched a movie yeah but that is one that sticks out in my brain of like oh yeah i remember watching it for the first time in this cold <laughs> concrete room on yeah. eastern michigan's campus and i left being like and i walked home because my apartment was across the parking lot yeah and i was like i don't know how to feel that's I remember that's how I felt after I saw Drive in theaters, because I saw it with two of my friends when I first started at Central Michigan, and all we knew was Ryan Gosling was in it and it was getting good reviews. That's it, and he drove, so I figured it would be more of an action movie. <laughs> I just but, I love that, <laughs> and he drove. That's all we knew, and it was not anything we thought it was going to be. And I remember walking out of the theater, like, whoa, like I don't know what to think of that. But I I loved it at the same time, you know. Yeah, that yeah. It's I love when you have movies like that when you leave and you go. All right, I'm gonna need a couple hours to decompress. <laughs> I remember we were silent in the car back to our apartment. My friend's girlfriend was like, we knew that Christina Hendricks was in it, and I remember she said like we were talking about it. She said, oh, and I love Christina Hendricks before the movie, and then in that movie she gets her head blown off. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not that kind of movie. She's You're not like, going to be a, huh. a hero. Yeah, so. It, that's how I felt after Drive. Anywho, Anywho, do it. All right, listener, keep listening for the Spooky Season episodes. We have some great ones coming up. Just be safe, be smart, be kind, and please rewind. Intro song from YouTube Audio Library by DJ Williams. Recordings done on Clean Feed. Podcast distributed by Anchor. Original logo created by friend of the pod, David. Current logo created by friend of the pod, Liz. Purring by Storm.